0: Okay, uh, well this is that great point in Proverbs where uh, we've finished the part that has context and uh, we've talked about this uh, over the months of our study but we've gotten to uh, Proverbs chapter 9 and um, uh, we've completed that. that section in Proverbs chapter 9, and the book actually changes at this point, uh, not in terms of its content, but in terms of its format. And if you've ever read through the book of Proverbs, uh, many of you uh, uh, know that there are 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs, there's uh, anywhere from 30 to 31, occasionally 28 days in the month, and uh, so at that, sometimes 29, and uh, some, so you can use that as a, you know, read through the book of, of Proverbs every month, and... Um, and so uh, if you've read through it, you recognize there's a real difference that happens starting in chapter 10. Chapters 1 through 9 are much like other books in the Bible where there's a flow, there's a context, there's a logic to the progression. In chapter 10, uh, chapter 10 totally changes that, and we have very little context. He, uh, Solomon goes into this... Um, Sort of shotgun mode of wisdom, where he's just launching out little tidbits of wisdom. Sometimes they're connected, and sometimes uh, Solomon's habit actually is sometimes he'll he'll take two or three verses and connect them together. But for the most part, it's it seems and feels very random, and that creates a challenge for us in our study. Is you know, what do we do right now? Because we can just walk through the randomness and just try to you know, reset every time we come to a different subject, which could be, you know, every five or seven minutes. Um, uh, the other way to do it is to study the, from this point on, to move toward a topical model of studying. And, and that's what I'm going to try to do with you uh, in the weeks to come in Proverbs. So uh, there are a couple of dozen topics in Proverbs that we can sort of categorize. And so what we're going to do starting today is to launch into those topics one by one and work through them. Some of them will be, you know, maybe we'll talk about um, what, uh, the wisdom of friendship, right? And we spend a whole Sunday talking about it. We might spend three Sundays talking about that, and then we'll move on to another subject. Um, but the way I want to do this is um, I want to let the context of chapter 10 sort of dictate where we go first. So if you have your Bible, uh, turn back to the book of Proverbs and turn to, tap to chapter 10, And I want you to notice the very first topic that is introduced for us. And uh, it says the Proverbs of Solomon. Uh, We know from uh, some of the internal evidence of the book and also from some of the historic books that were written in the Bible uh, surrounding the context of Proverbs that there were some of Solomon's uh, advisors, uh, his mighty men as they're sometimes called, uh, who took several of his Proverbs and edited them down into the format that we we have in our Bible. Um, so maybe that's why they're formatted the way they are, because an editor came by and tried to give um, uh, a structure to it. We, we don't know totally how that works. But right out of the gate here, it says, The Proverbs of Solomon, chapter 10, verse 1, A wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish son is a grief to his mother. And um, the subject that that Solomon pulls up as we we start into chapter 10 is the subject of uh, children and parents, or parents and children. (laughs) That's the way I read it on the notes. Um, So what we want to do is let this verse introduce us to the overall theme of parents and children in the book of Proverbs. Now this is not new to you if you've been to this class at all before because uh, the book of Proverbs is largely a book written by a parent to children and uh, much of its discussion is, uh, you know, it's it's sort of, um, you know, uh, spirit-inspired eavesdropping. You know, it really is because as we read this book, it's like we're getting to listen in on a conversation between Solomon and his children and learn and benefit from what we hear. Uh, so we've seen that so far, um, but overall, th- there's, there are other themes, grander themes, bigger themes uh, about parents and children, and so we want to investigate some of those themes today as uh, as we think about our verses. Now, uh, you may be a parent, and that's great, uh, this will be... Uh, very, very applicable. Uh, you may be a child. I think all of you were children once. I think that covers everybody. Um, so there, there is wisdom here, thinking about it from the children's standpoint. Some of you are still children in the home, and so this will be very beneficial. Uh, some of you are single, and, uh, you're thinking maybe I'll be married at one point in life, and, uh, maybe children will be a part of that plan. Or maybe, or maybe you're thinking about ministry to children in the body of Christ. You know, it doesn't have to be your own children or your own grandchildren that are in view here, uh, as the body of Christ. We come alongside and we, we build into one another. And many of you in, are involved in our children's ministry here. So there's something for everybody here. And, uh, so let's, uh, let's jump in. And, uh, I want to start, um, by setting the table. If you want to just hold your place in, uh, Proverbs and turn back with me to Genesis chapter one. We really have to start here to get sort of a running start. Uh, into Proverbs chapter ten, so Genesis chapter one uh, not surprising, is a very foundational chapter, not just for the Bible but for many things in life. And when we think about parents and children, uh, we, sh- we should stop uh, just for a moment and and think about god 's design for marriage and family and how god 's design for marriage and family is becoming more and more rare in our culture and more and more radical. Uh, more rare in the sense that family as God designed it is, is harder and harder to find. And radical in the sense that as the culture changes its idea of family and changes its idea of marriage and changes its idea of, of the family relationships and dynamics what God says in his word looks increasingly radical, even to the point of um, uh, Christians and and the the scriptural uh, design that we see here being um, uh, in some way unkind or in some way unloving or in some way judgmental and critical. Uh, For example, if, if we were to sit here and say, well, this is what God says marriage and family should be, and uh, there would be many people in our culture that would rise up and say that that is that is uh mean-spirited that is that is hateful that is unloving that is judgmental uh toward people that would pursue some other idea of family and marriage and uh, so i th- i think this is worth really uh reviewing because it's not like it was fifty years ago or even a hundred years ago in our country where the cultural view mostly matched the biblical view. You understand that, right? As our country was was begun, the biblical view and the cultural view were very similar. Not in everything, but but in, in a lot of things. And what's happening now is there's a separation there. So that the need of the church to unfold and to teach and to minister in light of the biblical design, that is a greater need today than perhaps any time in American history. So we we need to get this right, and we need to learn how to do so in uh, Christian grace and love, but nonetheless saying this is what God says. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. This is day six of the creation week. As God uh, comes to the end of his creating, the last thing he creates, the pinnacle of his creation is human beings verse 26 then god said let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth so god created man in his own image in the image of god he created him male and female he created them and we've talked many times in recent months about uh, god's design for gender Right, Gender is a big topic right now with the transgender movement going on. And and this this verse right here is theological sanity for that discussion. Because this verse teaches us very clearly uh, God's design for gender, why he did that, what that means, and what it means to walk with God as either a man or a woman. And uh, we've noted before, if uh, you've missed some of those series, that gender gender is built upon the reality of what we just read here that both men and women are made in the image and likeness of god so his design for gender is rooted in the image that god puts in human beings so when we start wanting to mess around with what gender is we actually are tinkering with the very image and likeness of god that is stamped on every human being and that's a very serious thing okay so we 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 read on so god um God blessed them, verse twenty-eight, and said, "Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it." We might say, He said, "Go and make disciples, right? Um, the 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 short people, the little people that will be a part of our homes, um, rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the every living thing that moves on the earth." And and we come to find out, if you turn the page to chapter two, that the way that God intends for that being fruitful and multiplying to happen is in this amazing, unique relationship that God designs as we we learn about how Adam and Eve specifically were created, uh, this amazing relationship that God calls marriage. Chapter 2, verse 18, Then God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And that tells us something of why there is a husband and a wife in the, in the marriage relationship. There is leadership. There is helping. There's a complementarity that happens in that relationship. And if we were to unfold this narrative, we would learn a lot about how that is. Uh, so God makes Eve. You guys know the story. Uh, Adam wakes up, and he declares his allegiance in marriage to her in chapter 23. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That's a covenantal formula there, as well as a... Um, you know, the obvious thing is he's saying after after all afternoon of looking at all these animals that have a male and a female and there's no one like me he wakes up and says, this is her this is my complement um, and he he pledges his allegiance to her in marriage in the, the covenant language there a bone in my bones and flesh in my flesh she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man noting uh, the complementarity that was built in to the very design of Adam and Eve for one another And then this marriage verse, verse 24, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So that's the summary, but but we, we can make some observations that God made a man and a woman, that God's design for marriage is a man and a woman coming together in a permanent covenant of marriage that's meant to be lifelong, and that in the covenant of that marriage, God calls husbands and wives to be fruitful and multiply and insofar as God gives them the the biological capacity, they are to pursue children in that. And and that that is God's design for marriage and for family. Now, some footnotes. We know uh, from what Jesus says and other parts of Scripture that there's a gift of singleness, that there are some people that will not pursue that marriage, uh, not because they're second class Christians or anything, but because that's God's design in their singleness. We understand that. We understand that for some reason, uh, uh, God decides that some couples cannot biologically have children. And there are plenty of examples of that in Scripture, and we know that God's good design is in that. So we understand there are some exceptions that God tells us about in Scripture. Uh, but but sort of the, the the way it works for for most people is going to be this uh, this covenant of marriage and children that come as part of that relationship okay so that that 's the background now there 's a reason for that 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 family unit of husband wife children that unit is designed for a very specific purpose that that, that, that family unit is one of well it really is the initial basic building block of society in God's design. And that's why the culture mandate, as it's sometimes called there in chapter 1, that uh, as, as Adam and Eve come together, they are to fill the earth and subdue it, and then they are to rule over the creation and be stewards over creation. Um, so so that's, that's the background, that, that's the, the, the table setting for what we're going to read. If you want to turn back now to Proverbs chapter 10 because in that family unit, God intends for certain things to happen. God understands that children do not automatically come into the world and become what God wants them to become, which is why he invented parents. Parents. There, there's a design in this, and, and that's why when we read Proverbs, we don't read it, you know, as a, as a child, for, for the teenagers in the room... You know, you may read this and go, that's so unfair. Why do my parents get to be the boss? You know, why do I have to, uh, you know, be trained by them? Why do I have to do what they say? Well, why do they have the, the power to correct me? Why isn't it the other way around? And the answer is because God, because God knows better. Because God knows there's a reason that two-year-olds are not running the world today. Uh, we, we would have a very... Uh, uh, well, let's just not even think about that. That's just that, that's just painful even to, to think about. There, um, I remember when my kids were two. What that would have looked like. So, um, but but you see, uh, so so for the teenagers in the room, even for the parents in the room, part of understanding what Solomon's going to say fits into this broader context of what God designs for family, and one of the reasons we see uh, such unrestain- unrestrained sin in our culture is in part. Because God's design for family is disintegrating. And when the family disintegrates, God's main training protocol to train children to be men and women who will walk with God and be people that that pursue righteousness in all realms of society, that that falls by the wayside. And now we have children that are adults that never had the benefit of godly parents in the home and, and, and other blessings like that. So... Anyway, so that, that's the point of all this, and I think it's a, it's a great opportunity for the church, for us to come alongside those families through our ministries, through Awana, through counseling, through discipling, through just, through just being a godly neighbor. You know, you can, you can help just by being a godly neighbor to families that may be struggling in some way because their family is hurting. Um, there, there are children that come to our Awana ministry who do not have uh, solid parents in their home, and uh, so we we take that as a great stewardship to come alongside and and minister there. So with that in mind, let's talk about what does Solomon say about the role of parents? The role of parents. Um, I, I think it's I think it's one of the hardest jobs anyone will ever be asked to do, uh, and I'm still in the middle of it. So um, you guys, some of you are on the other side of that, and, and I think you would confirm that. Um, so what is the role of parents? We, we see here, right out of the gate in um, uh, chapter 1 of Proverbs, that parents have a role. And we've seen this, so we're just going to kind of jump around and, and note some of these. Remember, we're, we're going in a topical mode here, which means you've got you to gotta be on that Bible app, man. You've got to be ready to to go back and forth in the, the pages of your Bible. But the main role, the main thing that we see Solomon tell us in this book of Proverbs, which serves in part as a book of parenting, is that the parents' role, their main role, is to train. To train. And um, we, we've talked about this word before. Um, we've, we've actually even traced the word uh, throughout uh, the book of Proverbs, and we'll look a little bit about it today. It's it's the main word that's used here. Uh, the noun is musar in Hebrew. It means to tr- it means training. Sometimes it's translated instruction. Sometimes it's translated discipline. But it, it it's that it's it's a word group in the Hebrew language, the language behind the Book of Proverbs, and that word just fills the whole Book of Proverbs and it's a way of Solomon to communicate that there's lots of things a parent does. Good night. There's lots of things a parents a parents do, but the main thing they do is they train. And that's why that word is used so frequently. Look at chapter 1 verse 8. Chapter 1 verse 8. And let's let's uh, let's develop this a little bit more. The first way that training gets expressed in the home is through instruction. And through instruction, and we've seen this right at the introduction of the book, chapter one, verse eight. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head, and ornaments about your neck. What it means to train, what it means to be a parent, is to instruct your children. Now, now this is um, this flies in the face of contemporary psychology especially as was popular in the 70s and 80s. And uh, some of you parented during that time. That's when I was mainly being parented, so I was on the receiving end of that. And uh, you'll remember that there was a whole fad in child psychology that said, don't ever tell your children no. And um, now that's a problem. That's a, that's a, you know, and, and it was really interesting to watch how parental frustration followed that particular trend, right? You know, it's like the, the, the graphs on the curve just followed each other there. Because children don't come into the world knowing what is right. In fact, our theology from scripture tells us that they come pre-programmed for wickedness. They're cute, but they're reprobates, aren't they? Um, and so they come, they, they do, they, they come into the world and they have wonderful qualities, wonderful gifts, wonderful talents, we, we ooh and ah and we take pictures and we post them and we, we, we and that's a wonderful part of, of childhood. But their hearts, spiritually speaking, are bent by nature away from God and toward themselves and autonomy and independence. You're saying, but they're only 18 months old. Yes, but they think they can rule the world. They really do. And so what is God's counter to that? What is his design for that? Well, his design is parents must first of all instruct their children. Now, now, have you noticed this? That um, children do not sometimes heed your instruction the first time you give it to them and all God's parents said Amen. right okay this is how the, and, and God's grandparents grandparents yeah okay all right so what is God's design <laughs> that was funny um, what what is God's design when parents instruct their children and their children do not receive or heed that instruction? That leads to the second aspect of what training means, and that is correction. Correction. Now, notice this. If we go all the way to the end of the book, we see this all over the place. But let's look at 29, chapter 29. Watch how this works. We're we're building a role or a theology of parenting here. We're looking at training, and we're trying to ask the question, what does the book of Proverbs say? is the role of parents that's what we're looking at and the main role is training it involves instruction we saw that and now secondly it involves correction Proverbs chapter 29 verse 17 correct your son and he will give you comfort and he will also delight your soul now isn't it interesting that I picked this verse on purpose because it sets the table for where we're going to go in those first couple verses of chapter 10 There are verses in Proverbs that say if you correct your son or you correct your daughter, it benefits them. But this verse is talking about what? The benefit to the parent. You know why parents everywhere are pulling their hair out? Because they're not correcting their children. Which means they're just going around doing whatever they're doing and mom and dad are going, ah, what do I do? And this says... Is, is, and, you know, if, if you're a parent, you get this. It is really, 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 really painful to correct your children sometimes. And yet, the promise of this verse is there are good things on the other side of that correction. There are good things for your child, and there are good things for you. The focus here is the benefit to the parent. Correct your son, and he will give you comfort. I've learned as a parent, that doesn't happen like, you know, five seconds after the spanking. Sometimes it takes minutes, sometimes it takes hours, sometimes it takes days, or weeks, or even months. Uh, there are some things, because progress, sanctification is progressive in children, just like in adults, sometimes it's years. And you're looking not for perfection, because that, that happens in heaven, we're looking for a trend, we're looking for growth and progress, just like we're looking for in the life of adult Christians. And that's assuming our children are regenerate. A lot of them aren't regenerate yet, which means you know, we are teaching them the things of God. We are teaching them biblical morals. We're teaching them their need for a Savior. But that training is limited until Christ is embraced until the Holy Spirit comes and resides, and and now they can begin to honor God from their heart. They can love God and love their neighbor from their heart, not not just because you've trained them to do those things, because they're right and you say so. But nonetheless, we see here that there is blessing, there's comfort, there's delight. Uh, When your children come back and say, you know what, Um, I needed that. When you begin to see the fruit of it, So there's instruction, there's correction, and then there's discipline. Uh, Correction, if we want to describe that as more of a a verbal uh, issue. Discipline, there's our word, Musar again, chapter 19, verse 18. Discipline has an instructional component, a corrective component, and a, a disciplinarian component. So chapter 19, verse 18 Discipline your son while there is hope, and do not desire his death. What do you do with that? Um, I mean, there's different ways to take that. I, 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 think, I think part of what Solomon is saying here is that even though discipline sometimes, sometimes requires a physical chastisement, an appropriate use of the rod, and we'll talk about that later on, Even though discipline sometimes requires that, the goal is not to hurt or injure the child. And I think that's what Solomon says, do not desire his death. I think what he's saying is the goal is not to hurt them. I mean the goal is not, and you know, he picks death as like, ah, you know, you you hurt them too much and they die. Solomon is saying, No, no, that's not the focus at all. The goal is not to hurt them or to afflict them in some way that would injure them. No. The goal of the physical chastisement is to train them. And the physical discipline is a means to do that. Um, so parents train. How? By instructing, by correcting, by disciplining. And what is the goal of those training efforts? The goal, as we saw last time in chapter 9, and we you know it's the bookends of the first section, right? Chapter 1, verse 7. Chapter 9, verse 10. The goal of that is what? To instill the fear of the Lord and this this is very important as parents what our goal our goal is very important if we're aiming if we're aiming at polite children or we're aiming at successful children or we're aiming at moral children i mean those are not bad things to aim at but the proverbs would say there is a grander goal that we parents are trying to help our children achieve and that is not just to be moral or polite or successful, but to actually come to fear the Lord and to walk with Him. And you'll see that theme as we've seen in the whole book uh, throughout the sections on parenting. Uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, chapter 9, verse 10. And you will see Solomon pleading uh, with his children to turn to the Lord, to trust Him, to live in fear of Him. Okay, so that's something of the role of parents. And again, there's so much more that can be said, but we're just trying to overview it at this point. Now let's talk about the role of children. And again, if you're a parent, grandparent, uh, if you're helping out in you know children's ministry in local church, there's something for everybody here. But this is, this is really particularly targeted to the young people in the room, um, our teenagers, our high school students that are here in the room. And um, the Bible has, uh, teenagers, the Bible has a lot to say to you. And I hope that as you're growing into adulthood, you recognize that this is something you need to be learning for yourself. This is something you need to be studying yourself and seeing these things for yourself. Say This isn't what my mom and dad say. It's not just what Pastor Terry says. These things are actually in the Bible. And I am under, even as a a, a young person, as a teenager, I am under the Word of God. It stands over me as God's authoritative Word. And... I'm responsible for its contents. I'm responsible for what it it imposes on my life. So so let's look at this together. Um, there, there's all sorts of things. We're just going to kind of jump around here. And then uh, where I want to get to is back to chapter 10. So, so let's just poke around here a little bit. The, the first thing we see that... Uh, the Proverbs say to children is that your role is to listen and to heed. We've seen this in several of the chapters we've covered, like chapter 4, verse 1. Hear, O son, the instruction of a father. Give attention that you may gain understanding. For I give you sound teaching, verse 2, do not abandon my instruction. So listen. Heed it. Don't turn away from it. Pay attention to it. Uh, Children, one of those basic things we do as parents is we teach our children to listen and to take what we as parents say seriously and you know how hard that is right it's so easy to get in a mode i've done it you've done it where you know you say things and you aren't enforcing listening and heeding and yet that that is one of the basic components of parenting is training our children to listen and to heed to not just not just the voice of their parents but but really that expands out to all, adult, all adults that those children are under in terms of authority. So we're building that that basic that basic listening and heeding into that. Uh, secondly, the command to observe and not forget. It's not enough just to listen, but you need to observe and not forget the message. Now, uh, any any parent, any experienced parent will read this and immediately know why Solomon keeps doing this. Why does keep, Why does Solomon keep saying, "Son, listen to me"? No, really, listen. Hey, hey, attention, listen. Why does he keep doing that? Because that's what children do. They don't listen the first time. They need to be trained. And they need to... uh, They also need, chapter 6, verse 20 here, to not forget. My son, observe the commandment of your mother and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Why? Because here's how it goes as a parent. And parents, tell me if this is not true. And teenagers, be honest, because you do this sometimes. Um... Your mom or dad will sit down and they will talk to you about what God says in the Bible regarding the situation that you're dealing with. With a friend, maybe a financial purchase, uh, maybe how you just had conflict with your brother or sister, you know, something along those lines. And they are giving you life. They are giving you God's word, God's wisdom that will cause you to flourish and to know the smile of God in your life. That's what they're doing. And you listen, and as soon as they're done, you're right back on your iPad. And you, you know, that conversation is long, God. They unfold life for you in the Scriptures. And you're thinking, I wonder what my mom's going to make for lunch today. Because that's the... (laughs) That, that is the, the modus operandi of teenagers. That, that's where we are. We, and, and, and can I say that we're picking on you? We all did that too. The old people in the room, we were teenagers one time. We did the same things, okay? So don't feel like we're picking on you. But that, that, that's the point, is you have to learn how to take those words of life seriously and to push out all those other things that seem more urgent and more important so that you will heed that message and not forget it. So observe and heed. Thirdly, Children need to learn how to accept discipline and correction. Chapter 13, verse 1. A wise son accepts his father's discipline, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. And our children come into the world not wanting to be told what to do and wanting to be their own authorities, which means training is involved, right? You have to train them. Um, Have you noticed this? people don't usually like correction have you know even even old people like us we don't we don't like to be corrected you know we we get defensive we get our feelings hurt we 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 get um you know we want to give them all the reasons why this is a good exception for why i didn't do what i should have done and that that's our nature that's part of our fallenness and and what what the argue, one of the arguments of this book is you cannot grow and mature if you don't learn to receive correction I guarantee you, think of, think of the godly, mature Christians that you know. Just, whoever those people are in your life, think about who those people are. And I guarantee you, one of the qualities you will find in those persons is they have learned how to heed and receive godly correction in their lives. And we know that because Solomon says, that's one of the marks of a wise person. You, you don't, you don't magically become a mature Christian without that skill, without that ability. So do we want to let our kids figure that out someday as adults, or do we want to start training them now to learn to receive correction? It's not unpleasant. No one likes to do that. We don't like to be corrected. But by training children in the value of it, by correcting them over time, they learn to develop a heart that is receptive to that by God's grace. And so we want to teach them to accept discipline and correction. You know, their boss is going to correct them someday, right? Their spouse is going to correct them. Their pastor is going to correct them. The you know the the uh, the referee in the adult soccer league is going to correct them. You know, life is full of correction, and most people don't do well with that. So we want to learn early. We want to learn young, and most importantly, God corrects us, doesn't He? Hebrews Hebrews tells us as a father, God disciplines the son in whom He delights. And really, the you know so much of what goes on in the family is just training. For what happens in the spiritual life, right? That the, the the training that children receive to when they learn to receive correction from their parents, that that's just the miniature of the greater need, which is to receive God's training and God's correction. So it, it's a it's a schoolhouse of sorts for the spiritual life. We also uh, kids, we also want to learn, kids. You guys aren't kids, teenagers, young people, um, to love wisdom. To love wisdom. Listen to this. Chapter 29, verse 3. We've seen this before in the early pages that we've looked at. We see it again in chapter 29, verse 3. A man who loves wisdom, look at this, makes his father glad. Where we're going in all of this is to think about a parent's gladness or a parent's grief. And that children have great influence over a parent's gladness or a parent's grief. Isn't that true, parents? And so kids, do you see that when you love wisdom, when you love God's word, when you love spiritual truth, that brings delight to the hearts of your parents, a man who loves wisdom makes his father. Notice the language here. A man who loves wisdom. It doesn't say teenager. It doesn't say son. It says a man who loves wisdom. You know what that means? If you're, if you're 50 years old and your parents are in the old folks' home and you're walking in wisdom, they're still benefiting in delight and joy from watching you walk in the Lord even after many years of adulthood. So this is something that, that, that goes throughout your life. Notice teenagers also, the need to watch over your heart. Love wisdom and watch over your heart. And he, he gives some particular areas. The Proverbs give particular areas where Solomon says, if you watch over your heart, particularly in this area, you will see blessing and benefit in your parents' Look at, you're in 29, just back up to 28. Look at chapter 28, verse 24. He who robs his father or his mother and says, It is not a transgression, is the companion of a man who destroys. This is interesting, teenagers. This says there are certain things you can do to your parents that are particularly grievous to God. And one of the things he says here, he who robs his father and his mother and says there's nothing wrong with that they're my parents they 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 owe me you can you can hear the teenage script that goes with that can't you is a companion of a man who destroys, who kills, who murders you say man that's, that's pretty serious so we see one one area where we see um, that, par- that children can sin against their parents is in the area of stealing or theft and the, the seriousness of that. We also see it, this is interesting too, uh, flip back to, well, you're in chapter 28, just flip over to chapter 30, verse 11. How do you speak to your parents? Teenagers need to watch over your heart um, in these particular areas. Listen to Solomon chapter 30. Actually this is uh, this is Agar actually uh, his one of his proverbs one of his sections of proverbs here 30 verse 11 there is a kind of man who curses his father and does not bless his mother and the implication is that's not a good man look down at verse 17 the eye that mocks a father and scorns a mother The ravens of the valley will pick it out and the young eagles will eat it. How's that for a graphic? Um, You know, one of the things we've noticed in the book of Proverbs is Solomon, as a wise father, knows that he sometimes needed to be creative to get through to his children. Uh, Now, Solomon wasn't competing with, you know, PlayStations and iPads, but he was competing with the normal teenage distractions in the ninth century, whatever that looked like. And I think part of the picture here, part of the graphic nature of this is because a teenager hears that and resonates with that. That's that's, ew, that's like the birds come and pick your, pick your eyes out. Ew. But it makes the point, doesn't it? It makes the point that to mock your parents, to curse your parents is a very serious offense. Why? Because they're your parents. Not just because they're your parents, but God gave you those parents for your good. They are some of the greatest gifts that you will ever know. And and you may not see that clearly right now, but you will someday. And so to mock the gift of God is a very serious thing. We see a similar note in chapter 19 where he talks about even assaulting parents. Chapter 19, verse 26. He who assaults his father and drives his mother away is a shameful and disgraceful son. So we see there are particular areas, teenagers, where, where Solomon would say, and, and really this is God's word, this is not Solomon, it's ultimately God's word to you, um, to watch over your heart and to be careful to not treat your parents wickedly uh, in these particular areas because they are, they are God's, um, God's gifts to you for your good. And notice, just as the role of parents is to instill the fear of the Lord, the ultimate role of children is to learn the fear of the Lord. Uh, we see, I cross reference there, Psalm 3411. You don't need to turn there, but you know it. Just, just listen as I read it to you. Psalm 3411 says this. Come, you children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. That's the cry of every parent. Come, my children, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Now notice notice with me how both a parent's gladness, that that, that was introduction to get back to chapter 10. So go back to chapter 10 where we started, and notice that a parent's gladness and a parent's grief are largely determined by their children. This is interesting. Chapter 10, verse 1. A wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish son is a grief to his mother. We see that same theme in those parallel verses there. Chapter 23, verse 15. My son, if your heart is wise, my own heart also will be glad. Chapter 23 verse 24, the father of the righteous will greatly rejoice, and he who sires a wise son will be glad in him. Let your father and mother be glad, and let her rejoice who gave birth to you. You see that? Teenagers, you have profound, a profound impact on your parents' gladness or grief. And conversely, we read verses like this, chapter 17, Verse 21, He who sires a fool does so to his sorrow, and the father of a fool has no joy. Verse 25, A foolish son is a grief to his father, and bitterness to her who bore him. Chapter 19, verse 13, A foolish son is destruction to his father, and the contentions of a wife are a constant dripping. What's the point of all this? The point is that children have a profound effect on their parents' well-being. That there's a, you know, we we recognize that there, there is a there is a connection, there is a uh, uh, an influence there between parents and children that is profound, and, and and rightly so. That's that's this is by God's design, and so we think about pursuing. Um, Training our children and and children, teenagers, you think about what it means to honor your father and mother. It will go well for you, Ephesians 6 says, but it also goes well for your parents. That that a way that, that a young person expresses love to his parents is by pursuing wisdom. And we see this connection here. It's really interesting, isn't it? And, and, and you know we've got a room full of parents here, and and some you know we we all know this experience at whatever stage of parenting we're in, you know we grieve over that adult child that doesn't walk with the Lord. We grieve that. You say, yeah, this is me. I, I know that grief, you know. And you and some of you would say, by God's grace, my son or daughter is walking with Jesus, and that makes my heart glad. And we affirm the truth of this experientially, don't we? And that leads us to need to make a couple more points before we conclude. Because if we're not careful, we can walk away with a wrong conclusion. And the wrong conclusion that we can walk away with is this. Parenting, Parenting is a formula. And I'm here to tell you, based on the Bible, that parenting is not a formula. The, the, the danger of what Solomon is saying here is that we would misinterpret what he's saying to this wrong conclusion. If I do parenting right, my children will turn out well. And if I mess up, or maybe better said, if my children don't turn out the way I want them to be, it's because I messed up. And yet, think of examples that we have in Scripture. Um, let me just read some of these to you, okay? Just listen. Parenting is not a formula. How do we know that? Because of those historic sections in the book of Kings and Chronicles that you and I are tempted to skip over in our Bible reading plans. That's how we know. And that's why we need not to skip over those sections. You say, what do those sections have to do? You know how they go. So-and-so became king when he was 25 years old, and he ruled for this many years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, or he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And he reigned this many years, and he died, and his son so-and-so took over the reign at this age. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Remember those sections? Why are those there? Well, they're historical, and that's important because the history of the kings is very important. But listen to some of these. 2 Kings 15, verse 3, talking about Azariah. He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. So here's a son who follows his father in the things of God, right? But listen to verse 9 of the same chapter. Um, Zechariah the son of Jeroboam became king over Israel, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. As his fathers had done. Okay, so you have a godly parent and a godly son follows. An evil parent and an evil son follows. But listen to this. Chapter 16 verse 2. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And listen, he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God as his father David had done. His father was a godly man, but he didn't follow the ways of his father. See, it's not a formula. And and conversely, we see in verse 9 of that same chapter, so the king of Assyria listened to him. Let's see, where are we here? 16, uh, 2 and 3. Yeah, he walked in the way of the kings of Israel and even made his own sons pass through the fire. So he did not do that. And then you have the opposite too. Think about Cain, right? Who were his parents? Adam and Eve. And you had one son who walked with God and one son that walked away from God. And, of course, the son that walked with God was killed. Think about the Israelites. Who's the parent of the Israelites? God is. And God says over and over and over again, the prophets, they are wayward children. We think of Judas. Good night. He was one of the twelve apostles. He spent time with Jesus. He walked with Jesus. He heard Jesus. He had meals with Jesus for his whole ministry. And then he betrays him. So, guys, parenting is not a formula. It's not like a vending machine. You put the right thing in and you get the right thing out. And that reminds us that both parents and children need God's grace. Doesn't it? Because as parents, we know that we are not perfect parents, that we fail. Some of us uh, grieve over things that we've done as parents. And we need the grace of God to know that the goal is not to be a perfect parent. The goal is to trust God and to be a growing parent. And we need God's grace even as we think about our children that are not wa- stay with me, that are not walking with the Lord. We need God's grace to encourage us, to, to lift our head, to give us hope for that. As we grow as parents, we continue to pray for our children. And you know, children need God's grace too. Because it's not a formula. You saw, you can have really godly parents and children will walk away. Our children need God's grace. Parenting is not the sole determiner of who our children become. Parents, parents are one of three variables in the equation, okay? Why do children turn out the way they do? There's three variables in the equation. There's the role of parents. That's what we've been talking about today. There's what the child chooses to do. They are, they are an image bearer. They are their own person. And before God, they have to decide to, you know, choose whom they will serve. And then finally, the third variable is the sovereign, wonderful plan of God. And you know what? As a parent, we don't control our children, and we don't determine the sovereign plan of God. So that brings us back, both parents and children need God's grace to trust Him, to pray for that grace, to lean on His grace, and to know that as our perfect Heavenly Father, He really does know what's best. And so we humble ourselves independent trust on him as we pray for our children and as we pray for ourselves to be the parents that god calls us to be okay that's where we need to land let's pray lord we're grateful for your grace and thank you lord that we can lean on that grace Uh, there's something about parenting that that exposes our weaknesses and helps us to see how much we need your grace and wisdom lord i pray uh, there are many children represented in this room uh, those of us that are parents and grandparents even great-grandparents And some of those children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, don't walk with the Lord. And we would appeal to you right now for your grace and mercy in their life. Would you draw them to yourself? And Lord, we pray too for our efforts as parents or grandparents or as Awana workers or nursery workers. Whatever influence we have over children, would we be the type of people that would be conduits of your grace? uh, That children would grow in the fear of the Lord and a desire to walk with Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen.